What you gonna do? Shoot a six-year-old Puerto Rican kid on the street? You don't know nothing. He don't even speak English. That's not true, actually. I hang out with my coworkers a lot. I like the people I work with. No, but none of my coworkers are in this. It's I'm like hanging out with like business people, marketing people, you know, kind of people who are into Six Sigma and stuff like that. <laughs> I feel like I that was directed at me. What? No, you're cool, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a. Is it a yellow belt? Is that what the six signals? I, I, yeah, I, I just I just pull that out once in a while because I know it comes up once in a while, but I don't. I'm not a. I'm not fully clear on six sigma. Nor am I. That's that's a supply chain yeah. term. I'm not a supply <laughs> chain guy. <laughs> Welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, a podcast that answers the question: What would it sound like if Patrick Bateman, Peng Sue, and Oscar the Grouch started a <laughs> podcast together? I'm Chris Lost. I'm found Jim. And I'm Patrick Bateman? Am I Patrick Bateman? <laughs> you always want to be my guy. Oh, you always want okay. to be the guy I use. And I'm No. And I'm Rick Rewound. And I'm Rick and I'm and I'm Rick Rewound. <laughs> and I'm Rick Rewound. And I'm and I'm and I'm Rick 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 Rick. Rick. Are you are you there? <laughs> Rick uh, We We lost you. <laughs> I, do, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff found, I do do to my children, and now I realize found, what a terrible person I am. <laughs> what a terrible father you are. <laughs> exactly, just person. <laughs> and I'm Rick Rewound. Found Jim. <laughs> <laughs> There's a delay. Look, I'll say that that claim, you know, that those introductions weren't fair to any of us. Jim is more magical than Peng Sue. Rick doesn't live in a trash can, and I don't love late era Genesis. I'm a, a wind and withering trick of the tail <laughs> guy. I was wondering if you guys were thinking about this. Lily Collins, do you think she ever thought about the Bateman, Patrick Bateman Genesis connection when she played Liz Kendall in Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile? Wow. You guys ever ask yourselves that? You lost me on that one. Lily Collins is the daughter of Genesis drummer Phil Collins. Right. Mm -hmm. Patrick Bateman in the book goes on a whole chapter about Genesis and how much he loves, except he rips on old Genesis. He talks, he says, like, noodly crap, whereas he really loves the focus of the Invisible Touch album. <laughs> and anyway, uh, Lily Collins played... Liz Kendall, who was, uh, what's his name? It's, oh, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. <laughs> Liz, Liz Kendall. I seriously am. I do have dementia. It's official. Liz Kendall was the girlfriend, the sweet girlfriend of Ted Bundy, who lived with him for years while he was killing all those women and then eventually figured it out, sort of, but still sort of kind of stayed connected to him. 
But anyway, Lily Collins does a great job in that film. What's his name? Zach Efron plays Bundy hmm. in that movie. Now, did Lily Collins, was she also, who, some, some musician's daughter... No, it's Bono's daughter is in the other, the movie about the uh, woman moving to London, the family. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sliding doors? No, no, no. It's a recent thing. It was on Netflix and people were talking about how great it was. It's kind of, yeah, it was Bono's daughter. Now that I was thinking of, that's got me confused, but I'm even more de- demen- demented, dementia than you are. So I can't remember the name of this miniseries, the Netflix series with Bono's daughter. I was making a list of bands who had sang a song, the song Gloria, or song about a Gloria. U2 was one of those <laughs> yeah. bands. Yeah. The first vinyl record I ever bought was U2 Under a Blood Red Sky Live at Red Rocks, where they sang that. But was that their song or a cover? I don't know. No, it was theirs. Yeah, I have that it's record. Theirs. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's a mini LP. It's not, a, mm-hmm. not an yeah. EP. Is that from October, Gloria? The record where Bono lost his notebook, so he had to re-remember or remake up all the lyrics to all the songs because he lost his notebook. I think Gloria is one of those songs. All the YouTube records? Is that how they <laughs> went down? Well, you know, it's an old, old-time old problem. You know, you wrote lyrics and you wrote them down on paper, and if you lost your book and you didn't write Return to Bono Belfast on it, <laughs> You know, you could lose a whole album's worth of lyrics because you, you might not even have them demoed or recorded yet because you weren't a rich rock star yet. Uh, that happened to Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. I, like, read his book, you know, that the movie is based on his memoirs, whatever, and he, like, halfway through the war lost all his writings and oh. kind of did it from memory. So it's all made up, you know, that whole, <laughs> all that stuff. It's all from memory. That was always like something you would say to somebody who had lost all their code. Like I remember (laughs) I had lost a lot of code once and I was like, oh shit. And somebody said to me, don't worry, you'll write it better this time. Because it'll be straightforward, less lines of code. I'm like, no, I solved all these problems. (laughs) There's no way it'll be better. And it wasn't ever. So you're saying that October could have been a better record? record? I think so, yes. I think that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm a boy person myself i like boy guys like boy you guys like you too you ever heard of him (laughs) i well so this is funny a friend of mine in high school or he left he he was a friend i think he moved to california (laughs) he was a friend he left left the friend the friend uh, so he's not your friend he left so you (laughs) he was a friend of mine in junior high school and grade school and then he moved to california freshman year of high school i think and then came back the next summer and was total California dude and was like, you've got to hear this band. This is the most amazing band in the world and had, I think, October and you too. And me and my friend who were still, you know, listening to classic rock and everything, they're like, meh, or just like, (laughs) and then I think it would probably is the next winter. I heard the drum intro to Sunday, bloody Sunday on WXRT. And (laughs) I I heard they like, it was an ad for the record. And the second I heard that, I was like, Oh, I have to buy this record. And then I found out it was uh, that band that my friend who had moved to California was, it was the same band. It was like, Oh, you too. They're great. I was like, Oh, I'm really <laughs> should have trusted your first instinct. A kid comes back from California who you grew up with and says, this is the best band in the world. And, and you go, mm, 
no, I don't think I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to go back and listen to Live at Budokan, which is a great record. That's a bad example. I'll, I'll go and listen to Moving Pictures. <laughs> Trick of the Tale. Trick of the Trick Tale. Of the tale. Yeah, definitely not yeah, that moving pictures. So, so I went and saw Rush years ago play. It was the Moving Pictures tour. So they did a bunch of songs, and then they crack into Moving Pictures, you know, and so Tom Sawyer comes on, everybody goes apeshit. And you get about one song into the second side of that record, and you're like, man, this is a bad record. <laughs> And it was just, I was like, I can't believe how terrible this band is. I mean, I sat through all that garbage to listen to Moving Pictures, and now I'm like halfway through Moving Pictures, and I am done with this album, with this concert. But they sold beer there, so I just drank beer and enjoyed it. How that. old were you? Sure. This well, was wasn't not... the Moving Pictures tour. Okay. It was like, was you know like how a... bands come yeah. back and okay. they do like, yeah. the Pixies are going to play Doolittle yeah. or what, you know, yeah. whatever people are touring on. Yeah. Um, okay. Did, did uh, that I actually was... happen? <laughs> <laughs> Hello? What? <laughs> Where are we? It's time. Like if Dinosaur Jr. came back and played Your Living All, although I saw them, oh, I saw them on the Bug Tour. Now that I think about it, not the Your Living All Room Tour. If they came back and did that, I guess I'd go to that show. It'd be a good show. Where, no comment. Where are you right now, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking to myself about what shows I would or would not go to. <laughs> I didn't like Rush, which Rich Rick took an exception to. He said, he, and I don't know, there's, is there much difference between Rush and U2 retrospectively? Well, I think people would argue that there's, well, I don't know if there's a U2 era of Rush. I mean, there's definitely a police era of Rush. I mean, they definitely, what's interesting about Rush is they reacted to contemporary music, and there, there are shifts. I mean, I, I do remember Rush fans in college complaining about, you know, how they got corrupted by New Wave. Mm-hmm. So I bet there is some U2 in mid-80s Rush or late-80s Rush. Roll the bones, is that right? No, I think it happened right about the midway through Moving Pictures. In fact, that was my that was my summation, is that that's when Rush started to suck, was like second side of Moving Pictures, because everything up to there was pretty fucking cool. And then, But it was also very just traditional classic rock, and then Moving Pictures beyond kind of took a... A bad turn. Hey Chris, maybe I just take a moment and, and remind you that we're we're not. This is this is the Lost and Found and Rewound podcast, not your your Rush podcast. <laughs> I think you got a little mixed up about which which conversation not, with two other it, white men in their fifties. Which podcast you're on? No, this is Red Barchetta, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to, I was, I was trying to riff until I could think of a good name for the the podcast, and you did it. That's perfect. Signals, signals. <laughs> isn't there like some? Isn't there a Rush album that's like Suburb or something? What is it? It basically describes houses that are the same. Or uh, I don't know. This is not a Rush podcast. What are other? Can I, can you name other songs? By Other Ra- Gloria songs. Rick, you brought up Laura Branigan's Van Morrison and Them, Gloria. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's. Is that the same as The Doors, Gloria? That's a story, is that uh, Them and The Doors played together at the Whiskey. I think before The Doors were signed, even. I think that's in Nowhere. No One Here Gets Out Alive, the biography of Jim Morrison that came out in the early 80s. Van Morrison and Jim Morrison had a, a drunken couple of weeks in Los Angeles. They really hit it off. And so I think that's why The Doors did Gloria. Were they related, Van Morrison and no, Jim Morrison? They were not. That was all the bands I could come up for, for you two, Laura Brannigan, Doors, and them. Patti Smith does a pretty interesting version of Gloria that you could almost say oh. is it's kind of a cover, but it's also got some unique 
variations that are her own. The Patti Smith group's version of Gloria is interesting. I was hanging out with a friend of Patti Smith's the other day. Not to brag. <laughs> so Having a good old time. Patti Smith, the seminal New York singer, not Patti Smythe from Scandal. Right, Patti Smith, the okay. seminal New York singer's okay. friend, not Patti Smythe. I wasn't hanging out with... So actually, is it Scandal? Was, Patty, did I guess... Patti Smythe. Wasn't Patti Smythe supposed to be the lead singer of Van Halen? Oh, that's right. I forgot At about one that. point? Yeah. Wow. So my wife hung out with Valerie Bertinelli, so she might have met Patti Smythe at one point. But, you know, that's getting a little far off. Let, let me just... <laughs> why don't I go and do the summary of the film that we saw, the synopsis of the film that we saw, Gloria. Buck Henry gets himself... On the outs with the mob to the degree that the mob kills him and his family. Just prior to the slaughter, Henry gives his son, Phil, uh, and his black book of mob information to Gloria, a woman once affiliated with the mob. Many say she is tough. I suspect she was a killer. Uh, Gloria and Phil crisscross in and out of New York, killing mobsters, stealing their guns, and stealing their bullets. Gloria cuts a deal with her ex-lover and mob boss, Tony Tanzini, for the book. But the book isn't enough. They want the kid. Gloria shoots her way out of the situation, and Phil and Gloria reunite in a Pittsburgh cemetery where they make out pretty inappropriately. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, that's a synopsis. You know, synopsis spoils a film. I, I'll, I will preface this by saying I had never seen this film. And usually we pick films that we've seen for this show. And usually we pick films that we think were incredible films that nobody knows about. I was going to do Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which I love. I love Cassavetes. But I remembered that Gloria was always on the shelf at Showtime Video. And I was just, and it was on beta. Time and time again, I was tempted to rent it and never rented it. And I was like, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity to watch this film. And also, I had seen the first five minutes on TV before and thought that it was a complete ripoff of Leon the Professional. So I wanted to go <laughs> and see if the whole film, which it was, a ripoff of Leon the Professional. So I thought it might be an interesting experiment to pick a film that I hadn't seen on the, you know, risking that it might be bad. And unfortunately, it did not pay off because it was a pretty bad movie. <laughs> what did you guys think of Gloria? Yeah, I don't think I'd ever seen it either. And, and it, it's... Definitely an iconic film in terms of the poster and the, the VHS, right? It's definitely a film that you would see at the rental place and there would be posters and just that image of Gina Rollins with the gun and holding the kid. Yeah, I think I had the same experience with it. It was like, oh, I should probably watch this or this is an important movie. But never, never watched it. And I think maybe it's because I saw Siskel and Ebert. I haven't, it did pop up on my YouTube. I should watch what their review was, but I didn't want to watch it before. Did you watch it? What did After I watched it, yeah, I, yeah. I too, I, I'd never seen, what did, seen it before. What did they but, think? Because I, I vaguely remember seeing a review of them doing a review of it. Positive, but re, kind of reluctant positive. Hoping, well, it was like, well... It'd be great if this is a successful movie, but I hope if it is that he doesn't change, he still makes his old kind of movies, you know, that it was like, this is definitely not a typical Cassavetes movie, but it was still slightly positive. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It definitely wasn't heavy. It was very much more uh, commercial, especially the ending. And, but I still liked it. It was still fun. <laughs> it was a fun Cassavetes movie. I don't know. But it was... I, yeah, I enjoyed watching Gina Rowland's act, and I also yeah. enjoyed watching her try to act 
with a child and right. the struggle and also thinking if I was a director, I mean that it's it's definitely he's Cassavetti set himself up with a huge challenge. That's the Siskel and Ebert clip was them talking about, yeah, just how terrible the kid was. And <laughs> which is not fair because yeah, of course most it's a kid. Yeah. You kinda just have to accept it. It's like especially in a movie like this, it's the, the yeah, those dialogue scenes are ridiculous. They're supposed to be kind of heavy. You know, it's like, that didn't bother me. You're referring to the actor John Adams, yeah. <laughs> who quit the business right <laughs> after business, this film yeah. to run Soho Billiards. He became the manager of Soho Billiards. He's the Jake Lloyd <laughs> of 1980. I mean, literally, like, that's all the... Uh, he got so much negative press that he was like... Yeah. I'm out. I mean, this is a yeah, little. Yeah, it's not kid. fair because it's just like that. That's what I didn't. It didn't bother me because it's like, yeah, okay, it's it's a little kid. I so. am the man. I am the man. <laughs> I am the man. I am the man. Yeah. I so am I, the man. I just ignored all that stuff and just took the movie for the rest of it. Gina Rollins was brilliant in it. The kid was terrible, but isn't that on Cassavetes? Because there was, there was no script. They were just like, let's shoot this scene, let's shoot... I mean, there was no trajectory to that plot. Well, is there a script? Who knows? I, I looked on IMDb and there were some quotes and, and things about from him saying, well, he wrote the script, he wasn't going to direct it, or it was just to sell. Oh, right. He, he was trying to sell a script or something and... Gina got cast, and she asked him to direct it. So when his wife, Gina Rollins, got cast in the film after he sold the script, she asked him to direct it, and that's how he got pulled back oh, into okay. it. I don't know. But boy, it didn't feel like there was a script. And if we go back to our Paper Moon notes, <laughs> we've had a director who said that Tatum O'Neill said that, you know, the director said she yeah. was terrible, that, like, they basically edited her into a great performance. Yeah, it's just, just the matter of how much film he had, right? So Bogdanovich was able to shoot a huge amount of film, and probably Cassavetes was not. It made $4 million. I couldn't find the budget. It couldn't have been a big budget mm -hmm. film. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. 1980? What do you make a film for in 1980? Less than $4 Especially million? Especially in New York, just driving around New York and... That's what I loved about it. Yeah, it was like, again, back to, yeah, in the last detail I from we were watching, yeah, They Might Be Giants and the street scenes and then the last detail. And it's the same thing. This is later. It's even more like from what I remember, my childhood that I remember. But so 1980, gritty city. It's a bit like Chicago. So, yeah, it was, it, it's cool. New York before Giuliani ruined it, turned it into <laughs> Disneyland. It's great. It's like real, you know, it's all on location and it just looks great and that's what I loved about it. I'd say New York was a character in the film. <laughs> New York yes. City was a character itself. This could have been called titled Gloria and the City. <laughs> Buck Henry short role. Oh man. In this film. Wow. I absolutely love Buck Henry. Rest in peace. But it was like took me so far out of the film right at the beginning. <laughs> it's like uh, pulp fiction with uh the guy who directed it. What's Quentin, his name? Quentin. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino, yeah. Cast himself in the middle of that movie. I remember that was like yeah. hanging out. Oh, yeah, I'm this guy who hangs out with these gangsters. I'm, <laughs> I'm this cool guy. It's like, what? What are you doing? Married to a black woman and using the N-word incredibly freely in front of 
a black man seemed really natural. Why didn't somebody pull him aside? You shouldn't be in this scene. Do not put yourself in your own movie. He pulled that stunt and that film, whether you like it or not, clearly changed filmmaking for decades. That reminds me, um, I didn't even realize until I saw the credits that uh, Lawrence Tierney was the bartender. Um, you know how she goes in oh. and gets a drink wow. in the middle, in the morning or something yeah. at that bar? Yeah. And it was like Lawrence Tierney. And I saw oh, it said bartender man. Lawrence Tierney. I had to go back and look because it's not the full on Reservoir Dogs Lawrence Tierney. It's the in between Lawrence Tierney where he still has some hair and, <laughs> and can remember his lines. Can remember his lines. And maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Amazingly enough, this film was incredibly well reviewed. So uh, Ebert gave it three out of four stars, yes, and described it as tough, sweet, and goofy, as well as fun and engaging, but slight. David Kerr of the Chicago Reader said, John Cassavetes clearly set out to make a commercial film, but intransigent personality that he was, he turned into a slice of pure avant-garde. And I think that's really looking at the film very optimistically. (laughs) Exactly. 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and a slew of these reviews. Uh, When I was watching it and sort of the non sequiturs and dialogue and scenes and it was still holding my attention. In fact, I was like, I better break this up into two watches. I don't think I can sit through two hours and 15 minutes of this thing. And I looked and I was like, man, I'm 75% through this film and I don't feel, I mean, it's just moving so fast. Mm -hmm. And I was somewhat charmed by just the weird scenes and all these bad decisions like and the bad handling where the characters are like the kids running out in the street no now he's back in the apartment or (laughs) gina rollins is gonna leave for some reason and then she gets on a bus and it's just like and is running all these gangsters and stuff or they're just standing on the street and a car pulls up and she kills four guys (laughs) i mean it's just just amazing i mean i i was actually I was enjoying the moments in the film, but the film itself I thought was really bad. And I was like, boy. But then again, it felt like a lost and found and rewound film a little bit because there were all these, like you mentioned, all these people that we've seen. Tom Noonan. Yeah. The creep from Mystery Train was in it. Showed up, yeah. Uh, We talked about him. Yeah. And there are lots of trains, lots of trains in this movie too. Lots lots of trains, lots of cabs and uh, town cars, buses. Yeah, lots of transportation. So that's always a good thing to keep things moving is is if you do a lot of vehicle shots, right? Yeah, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. Kinetic energy. Yeah, Yeah. I wrote that the train station scene reminded me of Carlito's Way. Yeah. (laughs) Unlike Carlito's... They cast actual Puerto Ricans <laughs> yeah. in the Puerto Rican role. So you got to give them that. Yeah. Cassavetes didn't uh, stretch the Italians into the Puerto Rican roles. But he he needed all the Italians <laughs> for the blatantly Italian roles. <laughs> Which, again, not a, not a lovely picture of Italians, but not one that I can refute <laughs> either. So I'm not sure what to do about that. Her name is Gloria Swenson, and they actually say, like Gloria Swanson. Yeah, the news, like, that was really strange. Yeah. Modeled, like the, the news report says, modeled after Glor- the movie star Gloria Swanson. Or it's like, I was trying yeah. to figure that out. Like, what is, the only way I could rationalize it was that they somehow interviewed her family, and she was born at some point. Her mother was a Gloria Swanson, and their family was Swinson, and so they named her Gloria after the Gloria. film star. Yeah. That's, that's the only logic I could work like shoehorn yeah. in there, but why would the news person say that? Yeah, it was exactly. that was a strange thing. 
putting an Easter egg in or a reference for the film buffs and then explaining it so yeah. they, they get it, right? That's what I felt like it was. Yeah, I think your, was your thought process, Jim, was more complex, complicated than what actually happened, right? I think yeah. you, you put more thought into it. Than, it was like supposed to be subliminal, like you yeah. weren't really supposed to be listening to it and that you wouldn't actually hear that the news reporter said, yeah. she's Glorious Winston as in the, the film star Gloria Swanson. But you were supposed to not really hear that, I think. Or, yeah, maybe. <laughs> when you guys saw the scene of her making eggs, did it remind you of Ozzy making <laughs> eggs and decline of Western civilization? It didn't remind me of that, but I, from what I've heard is that scene is fake, right? All that handwork is garbage that uh, right. Penelope right. Spheris faked all that. Like the hand shaking, pouring the orange juice, it's all, all manipulation to because, of course, documentary is a lie, so I can lie when I make a documentary. Yeah, we, we just covered that in the... In the fast forward episode, but I loved it, yeah, because I was like, "Oh no, she she's not going to be able to get that that egg out." And then she wasn't able to get the egg out, and then she threw away the pan, which reminds me of a some. Uh, it was a realtor who sold my house in Champagne. Sometimes she would say things like, "Yeah, I got so fed up, I just threw away my dishes and bought new <laughs> ones instead of cleaning." And it was like it was it was a beautiful moment like that where it's just kind of like, yeah, instead of going through all these dishes, I'm just going to throw them away, I, which is something I would never do. It's like, you know, I have, I have pans that are older than me in my house, right? And, it's, and it was hilarious to see that. And I feel like maybe that's Gina Rollins, right? I don't know how to make an egg. <laughs> that was what I got was like, this is an actress who's never made an egg in her life. I mean, like, I was like, what are you doing, lady? I mean, I make eggs all the time. And I'm like, you, cl- you clearly have never, first of all, you got to spray the pan for God's sakes. And she's like, Cassavetes probably doesn't know how to make eggs. She doesn't know how to make eggs. She's they're just like, just make some eggs. This scene, you make eggs. And then I was like, this is all just improv. I don't know what the hell is happening in this scene. How do you, I don't, I don't know how to make an egg for breakfast. I know how to make a cigarette for breakfast. I know how to order a coffee. I know how to order an egg. John, have you ever seen me make an egg? Just make an egg, honey. Ozzy made better eggs than, than Gloria did. <laughs> I also felt like this was a film that informed a lot of films. So Leon the Professional, I mentioned John Wick and Ghost Dog all kind of came to mind. But I guess there are other films that it influenced as, as well. Did you guys think of other films while you are watching this film? Yeah, see, now you, you, you teased that at the beginning. So you think she's a hitman. So that's why you're connecting it to like Ghost Dog and stuff. So I, yeah, I didn't get that, but yeah, I felt like she was a woman, like a gun mall. It even says that on the newspaper, like gun mall, doesn't it? Or mob mall, like a woman yeah. who hung out with gangsters mm-hmm. and slept with gangsters, but isn't necessarily a hit woman. Right. But she was really good with that gun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she oh. killed four gangsters in a moving car with a pistol. <laughs> Have you ever shot a gun? <laughs> no. Either one of you? Yeah. Do you know how hard it is to hit a non-moving target? <laughs> I've never touched a gun. Well, good for you, Rick. Don't don't start. So you're applying the logic. So yeah, you're saying because she was able to shoot a bunch of people, she must you it's it's kind of like like what Jim was doing, but I think Jim was, you know, it's that kind of like adding more depth to this because it doesn't make sense. It's like, oh, it doesn't make sense. Why would they say that? Oh, it must be because she was, you know, changed her name and everything like that. And it's like, no, they just, it's just lazy. And then it's like, oh, she shot four guys. And it's like, no, it's, yeah, she just shot four guys. It's not that she's an expert hit person. It's just, she shot four guys four, in a moving car. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, John, how is she going to be able to 
It's a movie. <laughs> Rick, I think you're right, and I'm surprised you haven't called me Mr. Hollywood or whatever you called me last time when I was trying to add some depth that they might be giants. A film that probably didn't need any additional depth. This film was so sloppily made that it was just a dame who dates a mobster, knows her way around a pistol. Watch out, because when she really has to use it, she's a better shot than anybody I've ever met in my life. You remember she runs out of his par- apartment and shoots that guy. You know, All these guys are terrible, by the way, too. They're just like driving around like targets. And she's just <laughs> blowing them away. Also, I think a main theme of the movie that doesn't seem to get mentioned is, well, they underestimate her because she's a woman. And the whole point is she is it's yeah. not like a superwoman, but she's like a desperate woman and she's fed up. And the whole thing is, I think a big theme of the movie is patriarchy or something. You know, it's like she's, she even says that you can't beat the system and the system is men controlling everything and, and the most extreme, you know, anything like corporate world, but the most, even more extreme than that is the mafia. I think I never really thought about it, but it's like the most toxic masculinity, you know, masculine kind of extreme yeah, I, case of just bad men, you know? Yeah. I think it's a clumsily made early feminist yeah. film, clumsily made by a man <laughs> and it's a, fe- a feminist film. And so, oh, and the whole thing, she just, you know, it's like you, what does she call him? Like she calls that one guy, he has got longer hair. Sissy. Oh yeah. Sissy. Yeah. Just like, oh, yeah. And, and then Sissy, the, and the, yeah. the gun and when she gets off the subway with all of them, she gets away from them all. And she's like, you know, a woman beats you, you know, basically yeah. whatever she said. I can't remember what the lyric, what, what she says specifically, but it's like, you know, you, you can't take it. You know, I, a woman's beating you, you know, and she's pointing the gun at them. And that's all, that's the main part of it. It's just like, She's had enough of this man's world. Yeah. She knows how it, what it is. There's just like, yeah, it's like, I can be just as badass as you. And so the Cassavetti's move is to put her in a mama bear mode. She couldn't just <laughs> be a woman who is sick of it. She had to be protecting a child, right? So they had to give her yeah. a maternal, although I didn't buy that relationship between the two of them at all. I think that kid was annoying. She constantly was letting him run away. And she hates well, I would, I would, like, I would make the argument, I don't know if this was kind of him trying to reverse engineer, but I feel like the kid is playing John Cassavetti. So the idea is, is that he's, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but he's, he's a man child. Like men are these childish, yeah. you know, oh, boys. Yeah. And, and so it, it kind of, in a way, yeah, you can say there's the maternal mama bear thing, but then, there's also, also like the man child, right? Yeah, like literally because of the way they interact and the things he says. He says, you're my mother, you're my father. Well, everything. You're my father. You're my girlfriend. Oh, yeah. You're my girlfriend. He doesn't say you. And he says, I'm the man. <laughs> yeah. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. <laughs> I am the man. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco 
Taco Joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. Have you guys seen The Professional or Leon or Leon the Professional? The prof- professional, yeah. Did you see the parallels yeah. between those two those films? Like the opening is the exact same. I, I have to watch it again. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely watched The Professional more than once. And the first time I watched it, I, I liked it. And then I think the second time I watched it, I realized, I think the first time I watched it, I realized how creepy it was. I think I may have owned a copy of The Professional. And then at some point I was like, I don't know. If this is good, I don't like the relationship. You might want to take it down to the crawl space and bury it. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, the opening scene to the professional is these mob guys, or actually, I think they're cops, show up and kill Natalie Portman's whole family while she hides in Leon's right. apartment. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then uh, the rest of the film is them kind of her trying to learn how to be a hit person so she can kill the guys that killed her, her family. Clearly, that was an influence on. Luc Besson when he wrote and made that movie and he and his big change was probably well I'll make the guy a hitman that makes a lot more sense than just some friend of this woman mm-hmm. who can knows her way around a gun the ending the ending of this movie I couldn't believe that it had a happy ending is is funny but it was like it could have gone either way. I was like expecting it. I was like, is it going to be a sad ending? I was like, I should have known it wasn't. I thought later it would have been even better if she showed up at the uh, cemetery with the cat also. She lost the cat right away. She's going out the door. She's got the kid and the cat in one arm. The cat's fine. You know, the cat goes running yeah. down the hallway, you know, when she, the kid runs away and they're trying to get out before the cops come after it. the family's been slaughtered. And if you're just going to do this ridiculous ending with the, the hat, he, she shows up at the cemetery that she should have the cat in her arm. Too. You might as well just go whole hog. And Inside Llewellyn Davis, there's a cat in that and he gets, and it's New York. And then the cat gets out. He's squat or, you know, sleeping on somebody's couch. And then he accidentally lets their cat on. That's like kind of this little subplot of the movie. I mean, that seems like something the Coen brothers would do is like, what happened to the cat in Gloria? <laughs> right. Oh, we should put this in. You remember You remember in Gloria and we were talking about the cat? She's like an orange, a big male orange cat. Is he an orange? a big he, cat. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I haven't yeah. seen and Llewellyn Davis, but it, it is like a yeah, big orange it is, cat. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Morris-like cat. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh. <laughs> we got to get the Coen brothers. This film was remade by Sidney Lumet with Sharon Stone. It got a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, the remake. I need to watch it because, yeah, I don't know how you remake a movie that I feel like is flawed and make it even worse. Well, that's what you remake. You think, oh, I can do this better. Yeah. Better than 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, and you go, you <laughs> like, drop to a 14, drop <laughs> 80 percentage points, 79 percentage points. I mean, and Sharon Stone's good casting. I think that's not bad casting yeah. for the role. Sure. Being a famous woman actor. Right. Yeah, tough. In 2013, Paul Schrader was planning his own remake of the film starring Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> Never happened. Which I thought was good casting, too. I don't know what's what happened to these projects. Paul Schrader can do some good stuff. So, I mean, there's there's a potential there, but it's also 
I think it is people tinkering, like thinking, oh, I can, I can do better than Cassavetes on this. I've talked about this, right, of, of killing a kid in a movie because that's, you know, in Hitchcock, Truffaut, I think he talks about, Hitchcock talks about the one mistake he made was blowing up a kid and was, is it, that's not blackmail. I can't remember what the movie is. One of his early movies, he blew up a kid and the audience hated him. And so that's like the one thing you can't do is blow up a kid or put a child in danger or, or kill a child. And so anytime, like that trend of children dying in movies, I think is like directors trying to prove that they can pull it off, right? <laughs> Yeah, Spielberg especially. What movie did Spielberg make where it's... Oh, uh, Jaws? <laughs> Jaws, yeah. <laughs> I've tried to remember. Yeah. He kills a kid in Jaws. Remember the yeah. kid on the on the raft? Kills, yeah, he kills... He puts kids in danger all the time. And yeah. everybody loves Jaws. Everybody loves Jaws. It's the only good Spielberg film. <laughs> so he succeeded. He should stick to that kind of shit. He should keep <laughs> killing... Like, why, is, why did he go soft? <laughs> With his later film. Back to the movie, you know. I don't know what. what? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, definitely expecting a little more depth, but like like the FBI. I was like, when those, some of those guys showed up at the train station, one of those was like, I had no idea where the movie was going. It's good that it didn't, though. It was simple, but it was just like, this is like this huge story, and everybody knows about it. He's on the front page, and all these people are dying, and this gang, like, where's the FBI? Yeah, you you want <laughs> but you it, want good fellas, right? right? You want like the, New York to be. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's again. I guess I'm falling into the trap of like Quincy. It's like, oh, there are these guys out there. They're just they just know everything, and they're just gonna they're just gonna be on top of it all. But still, it was like New York City, and she's killed a bunch of people, and it's everyone knows it's her, or the gang, the the mafia knows yeah. it's her, and it's like they're well, on the cover of the newspapers, and and supposedly Buck Henry was working with the feds. That's why they're after him because he's already yeah. squealed, or I don't know why he's still hanging around, or I didn't quite get that. Well, they were supposed to leave, right? They it was like I don't want to leave yet. Yeah. Let's I'm gonna make breakfast or I'm gonna make lunch before we leave, and it's like we got. <laughs> gotta leave now the mob we're made new york 1980 that's what it was like yeah. you know it was like the first opening scene when they kill the family it's like they use some well they're shotguns but i think they had bomb you know the guy had don't blow yourself up so he's got cases he the guy they're waiting for finally shows up he's carrying two suitcases and gives them to the other guys like careful don't blow yourself up i know you're clumsy the munitions guy shows up with the i don't know if they're hand grenades or something because then you know she looks well there's a shot of the windows blowing out so yeah. there's definitely, they're blowing stuff up and they just kill everybody. And then the next shot later on, a few minutes later, they're looking for the book. Let's just blow stuff up and kill everybody. <laughs> and they're just kind of just knocking stuff around. Oh, we got to find this book. Yeah, but Jim, we, we made this point on Fast Forward, right? If a bunch of Italians are downtown, <laughs> you know, killing each other, you think the cops care? It's just like, you know, they're it's just going to wait till it's all sort of sorted out, collect the bodies, and then there's there's less people to have to chase. I can understand it to a certain level. It's like this going in and coming out. Yeah, I know, you're joking, but... The corrupt Irish cops don't care about <laughs> right. the sleazy Italian mobsters. <laughs> What's Buck Henry, though? That's not an Italian name, Henry. <laughs> Is he uh, British? Probably Scottish. He's from a show business family, right? His mother was an actress. Ruth Taylor. Oh, uh, yeah. Ruth Alice Taylor was an American actress in silent films and early talkies. Her son was the writer, comic, and actor, Buck Henry. There were some good shots. How do I share? Can I? It's a podcast, Jim. No one can see what you're talking about. I know, but uh, just for you guys, yeah, present. The audience will see it because the mics will pick it up, whatever you're presenting. Do you see that? Oh yeah, I, I was think I was I was gonna do the exact same thing. It's not a demon though, is it? No, it's a Dodge Duster. Dodge Duster. 
Let's see, our, our family car, our early second car was a Dodge Demon, almost probably the same color. It's basically the same car. Plymouth Duster and a Dodge Demon, is that right? Plymouth, was, they, so. they were the same car. They just had slightly different headlights. Yeah. Or taillights. Taillights are there, yeah. Yeah. I, and there's, what else was there? Oh. That was my favorite moment of the film was actually when she shot those guys in the moving car. It was over and then she yelled, Taxi! <laughs> it's like a classic New York moment, I thought. I just shot four guys in the street <laughs> yeah. and then I'm going to hail a right. cab. Right, And that's the first one she catches. She's been trying, it's like... <laughs> right. Just before that, she's trying to get at least two cabs, and they don't stop. And then after she blows away, yeah, she gets her first cab. What are you showing us here, Jim? It was just the cups. Yeah. Do you remember those cups? This is pretty late for those cups. Well, 1980. It's like those those were around my whole childhood. (laughs) Yeah. I just like, there was blue ones and pink ones. And I I tried to search, internet search of those. I couldn't find any. I, I feel like 70s cups, disposable cups, and I couldn't find any pictures of them, but they were everywhere. An amazing analysis uh, and story of, what is it called, jazz or whatever, which is the 80s era cup design, which you (laughs) see all over the place Mm. and became kind of an internet trend, and then they found the woman who designed it for the the solo company and everything like that, and Uh, it's it's kind of it's got the blue kind of waves and then the yeah uh, I think that came up when cyan. I searched that yeah is the one that came yeah. up there's a great like really well researched story about the history of that design those cups are in uh, the last detail I swear to God there are people in a train station <laughs> drinking out of those cups just like Gloria and it's like ten years later they were there for our whole childhood I even looked you know when they're running through the uh, kitchen that's when they escape they go out the, that's the scene they're in the diner at the train station. Right, they go through the back. The back. And I was looking at the, the stacks of boxes. Oh, maybe it'll say something, you know, because there are all these backs. There was like paper plates. There were all the labels of the cardboard boxes. I was like, oh, maybe there'll be like a whatever Solo or Dixie, whoever made those cups. But there were, there, <laughs> there were no, I couldn't no, see anything. Should this film be lost? No, I don't think so. I, I You liked it, Jim. I did. On a superficial level. I don't know. You know, it wasn't, yeah, it's definitely not a great Cassavetes movie, but I do not regret watching it at all. It was... I don't either. I thought I thought I liked it. Yeah. It was, I just thought it was a bad movie. Yeah, it was two hours, but it was fast. It was a fast two hours, and it was could have been a lot better, but Gina Rollins was great. The only reason to watch it. She, she made it. Yeah. She made it. She was great. Yeah. Rick, should it be lost? No, I think it, yeah, I think it has historical significance. I think it's interesting to see the Cassavetes kind of style. It's always nice to see it. Well, you know, a lot of times it doesn't work. It does, it definitely takes you out of the film. It takes me out of the film, but it's also, it's just fascinating that someone was allowed to make movies in that way. Very few people are allowed to make movies in that way. Yeah. Which seems like they rely, like literally rely on improvisation. Everything I've heard is that when actors say they improvised and they improvised on the set, usually that's a lie. Very few things get through, especially with good films. And I feel like I can see it more in this film, especially, or just the fact that, yeah, this kid, it's not quite right, but it's in there. And there are things that make me uncomfortable about it, but it's fascinating that it actually got put to film, right? That somebody got a big expensive camera and a bunch of lights and shot the stuff and developed the film and cut it together in 
the old school way and made a bunch of copies of it on film and it went out into movie theaters. You know, just all of those, right? All yeah, of those To the tune of steps. $4 million. <laughs> tune of $4 million. And 40 years later, we're watching it and talking about it. It's I love it in that respect. It's not like a movie I could recommend to anyone, though. It's kind of like a movie that you talk to somebody else about who likes movies and has watched it, and then you talk about what's wrong with it and what's fascinating about it, like what we're doing. So it should not be found. You're saying this. I think it should be, be discovered. Found. It should be discovered by people who love films and can and have seen other Cassavetti's films. If you're going to watch one Cassavetti's film, it should not be this film, right? <laughs> but it probably is. Woman on the Verge or yeah. Killing a Chinese Bookie. Yeah, or... any of them, right? Besides this, right. right? And and yet this is probably the movie that the mo- the Cassavetti's movie. Am I wrong? But it's probably the most Wide, seen movie of seen, his. Yeah. yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's a beautiful irony, <laughs> I guess. It was just so, it was pushed. I mean, we all saw the box, right? We, we all yeah. knew what this film was. It's just none of it had watched it. It's, it's weird. And then, like, I remember growing up and getting into Cassavetti's and then being like, oh, wait, Cassavetti's directed that Gloria movie? It was weird. I was <laughs> like, I've got to, I guess I've got to watch that movie because it, it, it haunted me. Yeah. There was always something better to rent. I'm kind of glad I got around to it. Yeah. It's a document of a transition. So the thing is, is if he had done it right, if he had made that action film, made it on the level, I'm trying to think of something that came out a few years... Atomic Blonde or... No, uh, no, like just a few years later, because uh, all movies turned into that, right? They turned into the... Lost Ark. Yeah. Just, yeah, just this more commercial kind of action film. If he had pulled it off it would have been representative of the switch from the 70s era. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yeah, that transition. So Scorsese, you know, it took him, what, 10 years to figure out that transition? Raging Bull is around the same time, right? It's an amazing film. It's obviously a year or two later, it would be impossible for him to make it. Cassavetes actually kind of saw the future in a way, but blew it. People could have said, look at this. This is the blueprint for the 80s. And he pulled it off, but he didn't pull it off. So it's fascinating in that respect. He died pretty soon after, right? I think it was 89. It was a while, 89. Yeah, he did two more movies. The cinematographer for this film did Fletch, King of Comedy, Arthur, and Stir Crazy. Yeah, no, that's great. I was curious. I, I didn't yeah. look him up, and I was, I was curious about it. Because that, that, like the beginning shot, right, where they go over the Bronx, right, and zoom in, like there's some super zoom stuff going on, and there's a little bit of it later. Like there's a lot of stuff that's obviously shot. They don't necessarily use the zoom in the shot, but like shot from really far away with a zoom. Definitely that 70s kind of filmmaking style. There's still some pretty amazing stuff in there. There's a good shot of them coming out of the train station, her and the kid, just behind with a handheld, just coming up the escalator and then out into the street. I just like that. It was like kind of wide angle. Yeah. And they just spill out onto the street. That was really great. And then a lot of far shots, too, because they were shooting, just like you were saying, Jim, that they were shooting on the streets of New York. And I think they were using people, regular people, as the extras. So they would have the camera far back so that nobody thought it was a spectacle. It was just them walking out. It's a woman and a child walking out on the street or whatever. It was like like they might be giants, too. It was definitely those where people were kind of looking, which isn't didn't take you out because it was kind of like, oh, something's kind of happening over here. So sure, they're going to look. They weren't really looking at the camera. Yeah. So should this film be rewound, Jim? Will you watch it again? Yeah, in a while, maybe. 
You don't have any, yeah, why would I, yeah, because you don't, you didn't bring up any of your crackpot theories, you know, like, you know, Chris <laughs> usually come up with these bizarre, out of left field, like, Gloria was dead. She got, sh- she got blown up in the apartment building. Well, she did show up in the graveyard with that weird wig on. Like, how the hell did she know where he was? You know, why did she make out with him at the end? <laughs> and it was like even more creepy than Leon the Professional because they never really kissed in Leon the Professional or maybe they did once. But like, she's just like kissing this kid over and over again like they're lovers. <laughs> and, you know, she said... Everybody who dies goes to the same place. Yeah. So maybe, you know, they're, that's the same place, just that grave. And they all go to a, you can go to a tombstone. You can talk to everybody because when everybody dies, they go to the same place. So maybe yeah. they are dead. It's Pit- and that's why the cat wasn't with her because the cat lived. Right. Yeah. Didn't, didn't go to Pittsburgh because everybody goes to Pittsburgh. That's when they die. Yeah. That's where they were. I was not going to drag one of my crackpot theories out this episode. Okay. I've done it too many times. So you would you would or you wouldn't because there's nothing to, to examine whether or not. No, I'll I'll watch it again just to get a closer look at those cups. I gotta look into those. <laughs> I gotta dig deep. I gotta find one of those cups. In the I swear to God, they're in the last detail. Also, Rick, would you watch it again? You know, I'm I'm getting older. I think <laughs> I don't think I will. I think I I think it's fine. I don't need to see it again. How about the? The Gacy documentary. Will you watch that again? No, no, no. I don't need to watch that again either. There's nothing. The thing is, is there are films I will watch again and again. Like, I do question why I do that. And some of them are because they make me happy, but some of them are, you know, deeply depressing. Like, I've watched Children of Men a lot of times. Very apocalyptic films, but I haven't watched it lately. But yeah, there's certain films that I do watch more than once. This is not one of them. It's worth watching. It's there's nothing artful yeah. to this film. There's nothing. Yeah. Like, Children of Men is a, is a work of art. Like it's like why wouldn't you watch it over and over again? Even if I mean I, I it's one of those films where I'll catch it in the middle just to catch that car scene. And then you know there's some documentary on the on YouTube that you can watch that shows how they filmed that whole car scene. It's fascinating. Yeah. And you know that film was incredibly technically and artistically executed. Children of Men. There's nothing like that in this film. And this film was an interesting. An interesting study in Cassavetes, a fantastic performance by Gina Rollins. Fascinating, like Rick said, because they gave him a bunch of money to shoot this film, and it was a free-for-all that you know turned out to be somewhat charming. But there's no reason to watch it again. And I'm really interested in people. So I know, so the, the guy, who, uh, he was a Chicago guy, Andrew Davis, right, who did uh, The Fugitive, right? Because he, he was making uh, Steven Seagal movies, right, before that, and then he somehow had to... Do the fugitive somehow got that and they they wound up improvising like literally like every day they were setting up scenes and shooting them right because something that happened with the production like either he got hired right away but then i think he was making movies that way so for a short period of time he was making big hollywood blockbusters and he was he was kind of improvising. I remember seeing some kind of documentary where it was just like, well, we know we're going to do something on this lake today. And then they just start mapping out shots and stuff. And for like two movies, I think he was able to pull that off until it was everyone realized, oh, The Fugitive was a fluke. Like you somehow 
got this all to work together and were able to edit it together into a coherent film, but you can't really make movies that way. Not even avant-garde, right? Under, underground, not underground, just, yeah, independent filmmakers do, right? They improvise and make up films and everything like that, but like a full, full-on Hollywood production that has that is, is a really rare thing. So it's, yeah, I'm talking myself into making this a, a special movie, you know? <laughs> but it's, a, it's special in the way it was made, but I don't, yeah, it, it, it's not a miracle. It's not like when you watch it, you go, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle. It's kind of more like a miracle that, wow, it's amazing it even got done. Yeah, I think there's a hubris in editing. Uh, a friend of mine and I used to make all these makeshift albums in his basement with tape decks and stuff, and it all kind of came out somewhat charming and fun, and we always thought you could continue to make albums that way. And as our gear got better and better, the albums got worse and worse and it was because the limitations of the gear were was the charm and our innovative spirit and how to band-aid it all together into something that sounded really interesting made these things somewhat great but then you stick us in a studio with good mics and everything it's like you cannot shit out an album and get away with it when you've got (laughs) real equipment it's the hubris of editing i've done it with films i've done it with albums i've gotten away with it and then i have unfortunately gotten in the mindset of well we'll just fix that in the mix we'll fix the eq in the mix or whatever this project i'm working on right now the whole point of it is get it right now there's not going to be a mix if somebody puts faders up and it sounds like shit you failed. Right? Try to write the songs, have a really good script, have a really good technical plan, and then execute on that. And then, if you can apply some polish to make it even better, great. So I think, I don't know, I'm going a long-winded way of saying, I think when you are an independent filmmaker and you have sort of the charm of your films is how roughly made they are, if you can't become more disciplined as you grow, which I think Jarmish is a great example of someone who did become more disciplined and became a better filmmaker and didn't rely on the charm of his cast or the awkwardness of the narrative of the scenes. He actually grew to write great narratives and continue to to get great performances out of real actors, not people who were charmingly not actors and just were kind of doing a great job on screen, but really charismatic. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just think yeah, yeah. this is an example of a, of, a, of a guy who, with hubris, knew he could make a good film. He could just he could go point the camera at all his interesting friends and make a decent film, and I think it just didn't. It worked for Gloria, but this is a different scale of filmmaking, and he probably should have been a little better, had a better plan. Yeah. I don't know. Is That's it good or bad? Would it have been good or bad if he had done it well? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Is the, yeah, because n- nobody. I, I'm thinking of all those kind of '70s era filmmakers, and they all had problems, right? Even Steven Spielberg, right? You know, you think about. I mean, it, it took a little longer, but he had he kind of struggled after Raiders: of The Lost Ark, right? Yeah, he only made one good film, which was Jaws, and the reason why that was a good film was because of all the problems. The shark didn't work, right? So he had to just basically show the fin and then have uh, John Williams be the shark, which was fucking brilliant, right? Like, that's tension. That's Hitchcockian tension. The music, the, the fin, the threat of the shark, not the dumbass mechanical shark that looks terrible. Like, and he was so lucky that the damn thing broke down. And just like the guy in the back of the room, you know, one day he was super drunk, one day he was super sober, and he cut together a brilliant speech in the back of that room between an actor who was like half in the bag and an actor who came to work sober. That's an accident. You know, it's like he wasn't, he wasn't at the hands of that. He just knew how to capitalize on all the mistakes that were going on around him. And then when the guy got pristine budgets and great actors and he made 
garbage, you know, from that point on. <laughs> Did you see the guy who got swallowed by the whale this week <laughs> in Massachusetts? That was yeah, amazing. Yeah, he lived. Yeah, he got spit out. That was, you know, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, it was kind of a funny story. Oh, yeah, he got in the, he was in the whale's mouth. And then I watched the video, like the interview, it was like local news. Him, like he's like in the, the parking lot of the hospital. He's like in his, his hospital jammies, you know, <laughs> and they're just standing in the, uh, the, uh, the parking lot and he starts talking about it. And it's like harrowing and just, it's like existential nightmare. And just the way, the way he described it, it was just like terrifying. And it was like, oh, this is horrible. You know, it was like, the, it was like this, this ridiculous news story. It's like, oh he was shaken. It was just like the look in his eye. It was like, <laughs> it was like, wow, of course you'd be shaken. You'd be like, have you ever been in the mouth of a whale? <laughs> like you're being suffocated by its tongue. You're like, I'm a dead man. And then suddenly you're not. Yeah. It was like this whoomp, this bump. And then it all went dark and he could s- tell he was still moving. At first he thought he was, you know, attacked by a shark. And then he was like, but then it seemed like almost immediately he's like, oh no, I've I'm in the, the mouth of a whale. He knew, and it's just like, oh, this is it. You know, I'm dead. And then he went up and spit him out or flung him. He, like, whipped his head, and he went flying and wasn't severely hurt, but... Was he in scuba gear? Yeah, he was diving, yeah. Oh. It said he was 45 feet down, and they just went, whoomp, and it was like, all went dark. And his friend watched it happen? No, it was like when he went up, I think he was on the surface. I think when you're diving, I don't know, I don't know the... I think you're, yeah, you have somebody on the surface. So his friend on the boat saw, I don't know if he saw the whale come up, you know, saw him, must have seen him get flung out. So it wasn't just a guy telling a story. That's why I was like, How, is this just some guy telling a story? But no, yeah, it was like, obviously you have other people with you. You don't go diving alone. I'd like to see what Spielberg could do with that story. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd like Spielberg to stop doing things with stories. It's oh, pretty close to what you like about his work. What is it? The music? The fin? The, the threat? <laughs> Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.